All right, folks, I guess we'll get started. Like five minutes late is the normal, kind of customary, fashionably late in this culture here. Um, I'm early. <laughs> Don't believe a word he says. All right. All right, let me just uh, open us up in prayer, and then we'll get, uh, get right at it. Lord, I just thank you for this time that we can share here in, uh, in Sudbury, and we can look at your word. And um, thank you for the tools that um, you've helped uh, uh, your people to develop, Lord, that uh, I can share with, with this church here. And um, I just pray, Lord, that this would be something that glorifies you and that um, we can bring more people into your kingdom, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at uh, tools for understanding the Old Testament. Does everybody have one of these booklets? Okay, there's tons of them. So who, who needs one? Does anybody else need one? Okay, can you just... Uh, um, I just want to... Yeah, they're over here. So as I shared just briefly uh, this morning, we're missionaries working in Quebec um, on the, as a campus pastor. So we have a Bible study there. As well, uh, I teach at Bible schools in the area. We are part of our uh, small church plant, uh, and we're just digging into the community to try and bring the gospel in all the ways that we can, especially using my gift of teaching. Um, yeah, and, and I saw some of you guys checking out my table. Uh, if you want to sign up for the newsletter, then you can get uh, regular updates as well. We have the blog, if you're into blogging and online. Uh, so have a look at that. We're currently down in our support, so if you would love to work, um, encourage a work that's happening right now in Quebec, we're, we're down about 20% in our support, so uh, you could have a look at that. Alright, so that's that for my commercial, so to speak. Um, let's look at the Old Testament. Speaking of which, we're kind of rushed leaving home. And there's one thing very important that I forgot to pack. Which reminds me, does anybody have a pew Bible that I could borrow? <laughs> I'm here preaching on understanding the Old Testament. I literally don't have a Bible. Thank you. So our next stop, we'll, uh, we're going to have to pick up a, a Bible to sit in on the one that I forgot behind. So, um, how many of you guys have heard one of these phrases? The God of the Old Testament gets angry. Have you guys heard that, talking about the God of the Old Testament? How many of you guys have heard, I'm just a red-letter Christian? You heard of that before? What does that mean when somebody says, they're, I'm just a red-letter Christian? Yeah, we're just, I'm just focused on what Jesus said. I don't really care about all the rest of the Bible. Does, does that concern you when people start drawing a hard line between the Old and New Testament, or saying, all I need is Jesus? a red flag. Why is that a problem? Because the entire Bible is God's story. Yeah. And, and all of the scriptures point to Christ. Yeah. So you can't need any help. And, and somewhere in scripture says that the Old Testament is there for us to learn from. Yeah. Things happen the rest of the Yeah. For sure. So one of the first heresies to hit the church the, the Bible was written in the first century, Jesus died in 33 AD, and the Bible was written in the next 70 years, the whole New Testament. Most of it written within about 30 years. And in the second century, one of the first heresies to really hit the market is people started putting a spin on Christianity and trying to take it off in their own directions, as has been happening ever since, was Marcionism. And Marcion came along and said, look, we don't need the Old Testament, that was written by an angry God. And we don't need much of Paul, because Paul was pretty much really influenced by the Old Testament God. All we need is Jesus. It's one of the first heresies that hit the church. And it was obviously rejected by, by Christianity. And yet, today, we're experiencing kind of a new resurrection in Marcionism, where people are rejecting the Bible, just give me Jesus. But the problem with rejecting the Bible and just give me Jesus is this. How many of you guys have noticed that everybody likes Jesus? Has anybody here met somebody that honestly said, I don't like Jesus? Maybe you have, but I have met very few people. Marxists love Jesus. Feminists love Jesus. Buddhists love Jesus. Hindus love Jesus. Catholics love Jesus. Protestants love Jesus. Muslims love Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses love Jesus. 
Well, hold on a second. Secularists love Jesus? How can all these people that completely disagree love Jesus? Well, part of it is his life, obviously. But part of it is that God revealed himself. <laughs> Buckling under the pressure and the weightiness of the subject. <laughs> You have a pen and marker. Oh. Uh, Jesus is the full representation of God. But he has represented, the Old Testament builds up to Jesus. And Paul explains, and the rest of the New Testament explains Jesus. If you just take Jesus out of his context, you can make him say whatever you want him to say. And suddenly the way, the truth, and the life becomes, you know, whatever the Buddhist or the secular humanist or whatever wants it to mean. So if we don't have the Old Testament context for Jesus, then Jesus just becomes an empty word. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do the things that I said? And that's because honestly a lot of people are confused and a lot of people um, honestly don't understand Jesus because Jesus was a Jew speaking to Jews. And the Jews are God's chosen people to whom he revealed a lot of himself. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The opposite is also true. If you've seen the Father in the Old Testament, you see Jesus. If you haven't seen the Father in the Old Testament, you don't know Jesus. You might think you know Jesus. You might say, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus, he's all about social justice. Jesus, he's all about feminism. Jesus, he's a... You're not talking about Jesus, you're just talking about yourself and your own personal ideas. And so, when we go into this subject of understanding the Old Testament, having some keys for understanding the Old Testament, let's have a look at what's at stake. If we are modern-day Marcionites and just throw out the Old Testament and say, well, at least we have Jesus. No, we don't. If we throw out the Old Testament, we don't have Jesus anymore. All we have is a hand puppet that we can make to say whatever we want, and we call this hand puppet Jesus. So, um, it's super important to know how to be able to read the Old Testament. That being said, it's sometimes very difficult to read the Old Testament. And as I'm working on, the, on campus, I encourage my students, obviously, to read the Bible. And so they start at the beginning, and they start reading, and pretty soon they come back and they say, you know what, I, I bumped into some stuff that, that kind of bothers me. So what are some examples of things that you guys or friends would find problematic in the Old Testament. We had a Bible study in our home and uh, one of the ladies phoned one evening and said, I can't do this. And I said, can't do what? She said, I'm reading in Leviticus. My husband and I, every year, have a big order of seafood that we have come in. Frozen seafood. And she says, I can't eat salvage. So it's the Levitical laws. Yeah. So there's all these laws in the Old Testament, and this one comes up when we discuss the huge issue in our culture today is homosexuality and gender issues. And the Bible doesn't leave us lost on this issue. It gives us direction. It gives us guidance where we need it. And yet people will push back and say, well, you don't, you eat shellfish and you have, you know, fat, mixed fabrics in your clothing. So why do you ignore kosher laws but take sexual laws or sexual morality laws from the Old Testament? So that's a big theological issue. What are some other issues and stumbling blocks people might have as they, as they read the Old Testament? How about to kill yeah. whole families, even children and animals, for one person's sin or yeah. one family's sin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you added, I thought you were going to stop there, just that God killing lots of people. But the, the idea of federal responsibility is a large concept that I don't think we'll get to today, but, you know, People are responsible for, you know, our Prime Minister is making decisions. And we're all doing something together. You know, if our Prime Minister says we're going to war, that's on us. You know, and that's a, an idea of federal headship that is very much active in the Bible, but we in our individualistic society think that it doesn't exist, although it does. We are still in a, in a system of, of being, um, where our leadership makes decisions and we are doing that, but... All right, before I start um, 
uh, going here and there and everywhere. Let's get on to uh, this material. And I have to tell you that this material, we have more than we have time for. Um, and so I want to try and pack this into an hour so that we have time for questions. And so um, the first two points are really important. We're going to take more time for that. And then the rest of them, the material is here. We're going to skim over it fairly quick. And then hopefully you guys can have questions and we can workshop it out. So just so you know, the first couple points that we're really going to dig into. And then the next we're going to move fairly quickly. Uh, but the materials will be there as well. I also just want to mention, um, you can find all my resources right now. I'm making a video and that's going to turn into a podcast. It's going to go on my blog. Um, my blog is called no longer be children wordpress.com from the verse therefore we shall no longer be children being tossed here and there by the waves but um, I forget the rest of the verse on the spot but you can also find all my resources at josiahmeyer.com and so I've already done this material and there's three podcasts on when God was mad when the saints were bad and weirdness in the Old Testament that you can find this material in a more expanded format um, but let's have a look now I've got kind of a, an outline at the front, and this is going to be helpful as we dive into the material, you can refer back to this, and this is also going to be a quick reference guide for you. As people ask you questions, this is going to be a quick re uh, reference to um, help you remember uh, how to answer these questions. And I have three big ideas, and then six tools. So first big idea, God is not one of us. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means. Second big idea is that when God kills, it's not murder. And we're going to find that's a really important key for understanding the Bible. The third big idea is that ceremonial uncleanness is not the same as ethical guilt. And we'll unpack that when we get there. And then we have six tools. First tool is that the Bible is a real book about a real God that meets us in the real world. Second tool, don't judge real history against a utopia. As you're reading history, it's real, it's real life, it's real people, it's tough situations. Don't, don't judge it against the utopia, the perfect situation. Judge it against what, what is uh, viable options in the context. Third, progressive revelation. Um, that in the Bible, God revealed more and more of himself until Jesus, who is the full representation of Christ. Really important tool here is that, in number four, there are sections of the Bible that are descriptive, and sections that are prescriptive. There are sections of the Bible that describe what happened. Judas went out and hanged himself. There are sections of the Bible that prescribe what you should do. Jesus washed his disciples' feet and said, therefore, do likewise. So you need to know the difference. And, it, and it's very common sense to understand the difference between the two. But if you don't know the difference, you're going to be very confused as you read the Bible. Um, the Old Testament contains both con commands and concessions. Matthew 19, 8, Jesus talks about how divorce was a concession for the hardness of our hearts. It wasn't the original intention. It was something that God used because he knew he had to meet his people halfway. So there's commands in the Old Testament, thou shalt not kill. And then there's a concession. You know what, if you're going to divorce, this is how you do it. And you respect your wife as, uh, in the best way that you can. Uh, and the final one that that'll, we'll take more time to unpack is that the law, the Old Testament law, contains civil, ceremonial, and ethical commandments. We need to know the difference between those three. Alright, so let's have a look at the first one. Is that God is not one of us. <coughs> How many of you guys remember that song, What If God Was One of Us, Just a Stranger on the Bus Trying to Make His Way Home? <laughs> Who sang that song? Is that in the late 90s, turn of the century? What if God was one of us? Anyways. Um, as, as people first pick up the Bible that have no background for Christianity, um, I mean, it's common sense for us because we were raised in the church. We understand the idea of holiness. We understand the idea of God uh, being the ethical center of, um, He is the judge, He is holy. But just an average person picking up the Bible for the first time, they, they, they read it and their, their beginning point, their starting point is thinking of God as one of us, as just another human being. And this becomes very, very problematic because God does things that you and I don't have a right to do. He makes decisions that if you were to make the decision or if I was to make the decision, it would be wrong. And in fact, God is put in situations where if there was a human in that situation, no matter which decision they made would be the wrong decision. But because He is God, He can make those decisions 
And he is justified in doing so because he is God. Because he is God, because he is holy. Now what do I mean by holy? I don't want to just throw out a big word and just drop it there. What I mean is he is the center and ground of ethics and morality. So when you say, God doesn't have the right, let's just stick with that phrase, God does not have the right to slaughter the Amalekites. God commanded Saul to slaughter the Amalekites. God does not have the right. What do you mean? What do you mean that God does not have the right? Is that your opinion? No, it's not my opinion. I'm saying he doesn't have the right. It's not good. It's, it's wrong that God did that. So it's not my, your opinion. It's not my opinion. There's something higher than our opinions that is right and wrong. This idea of absolute right and wrong that our society has rejected and turned away from, and yet we can't avoid it. In all of our discourses, even talking about God, we assume some standard of right and wrong. This absolute standard of right and wrong is what we mean by God, or it's part of God. Um, theologically, we would say that absolute right and wrong is grounded within the character and nature of God. Not that God is. Not that the moral law is all there is to know about God. But God's character is justice. God's character is righteousness. God's character is goodness. And so whenever you're saying, it's not right that this, it's, it's wrong that this, yes, there's you and me down here, and we have our opinions, and we have uh, the law written on our hearts, as it says in Romans, help me out, two or three. Um, we have some amount of, of goodness in us, based on our conscience, but the ultimate standard is God himself. And so when we try and disagree with God and say, God, it was wrong for you to do that, we need to understand that from a Christian point of view, what we're doing is we're disagreeing with the actual standard itself. God is the center. God is the ground of absolute right and wrong. And that leads into big idea number two, for God to kill is not murder. You need to understand this when you're reading the Old Testament. For God to kill is not murder. Let's stop and think for a little bit about the two words kill and murder. Now kill is a general word that refers to the ending of life, right? You can kill a plant, you can kill a theme song, you can kill a human being, you can kill an ant, um, you can kill all sorts of things. Murder is killing in an ethically inappropriate way. Murder means you shouldn't have done that and you did it. Not you specifically, but... You know, in general. Um, there's all sorts of other words for kill, because we want to be very precise when we're talking about killing. This is a very important issue. You can assassinate somebody. You can execute somebody. You can euthanize somebody. You can abort somebody. You can um, exterminate somebody. You can have a genocide. There's all these different words that we use because we want to be very precise, because it, an assassination is different than a murder. And some would say that abortion is not murder, and they're wrong. Uh, and some would say euthanasia is not murder. And we have all these discussions in society, but which, where does murder apply? And the big idea here is that the category of murder does not apply to the God who is the center and source of all morality and goodness, who is the judge. Now there's two minor points here that we can talk to about before that. The God is also the creator of all life. God is the sustainer of all life. So because God has created life, and because God sustains life, um, yeah, Genesis 1 and 2 talks about how God created life, and Psalm 104, 26 to 30 talks about how He sustains life, and God gives His Spirit, and there is life, God takes back His Spirit, and there is death. So the fact that God is the creator and the sustainer of life really puts things in a different perspective. But it doesn't completely answer the question. Because after all, your father gave you life, but he doesn't have the right to take that life back. Your mother, for a certain amount of time, was giving you life and sustaining you, but she didn't have a right to take that back. We have, as human beings, we have an ethical, we have dignity. Our life has value. And nobody has a right to take that life away. And we know that, whether we know it because it's written in scriptures or just because it's written in our heart, we know that. But that is a law that applies to us as human beings. It doesn't apply to God who created us. 
Um, and especially because God has said that he is the judge. Uh, Abraham asked God, shall not the judge of all the earth judge rightly? And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And who has sinned? A few people? There's people we don't like. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death and all have sinned. That means that before the judge, who is worthy of death? All are worthy, not of murder, but if we use that, that category, that word execution. Because before the judge, ethically, morally speaking, we are worthy of death. So the category of murder does not apply to God killing somebody. He is completely justified in, in annihilating the whole human race. So then the question becomes, why doesn't God kill everybody? If that is the just, that is justice, why doesn't God kill everybody? On a completely unrelated note, could somebody fill up my water for me? I'm so parched. Thank you. Why doesn't God, I'll just ask you that, why doesn't God kill us all right now? If he's we're all gracious. sinners and He's just. He's gracious. He's, he's gracious. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not slow regarding His promises, but He is patient, waiting for all to come to repentance. He has made a way of salvation for us. And He is patient. He is waiting for missionaries. He is waiting for you, all of you, to talk to your friends, to, to share with your family members about this way of escape, the way of salvation, which God has made for us in Jesus Christ. Um, something that I'm going to add to the future versions of this, uh, big idea number four, if you've got a pen, um, is the love of God. The love of God shelters us from the wrath of God. It's not written anywhere, uh, but that's the next thing I'm going to say, is that the love of God shelters us from the wrath of God. The love of God shelters us from the wrath of God. So another thing that's really confusing reading the Old Testament is that it seems like God has almost a double nature. One minute he's super angry, the next minute he's super gentle, and especially as you're reading the prophets, it's just like God's angry, and then he's restoring people, and then he's angry again. What is going on? God is perfect justice. If you can imagine what absolute justice would be like, absolute holiness, where all of us standing before that, we're all imperfect. We're all sinful. And there's, there's no degrees because the separation between us and God, between absolute holiness and us is so extreme. All of us are just complete, total sinners compared to the holiness of God. Absolute holiness and then absolute power. God is the one that just spoke and everything popped into existence. God is the cause of the Big Bang. He is the one that is able to bring matter, time, and energy into existence just with His Word. So when you have absolute holiness combined with absolute power, and you bring that into the presence of sinful human temporal beings, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be without Jesus. And God has given us Jesus, and He says when, when we are in Christ, when we get saved, we are in Christ. And when God in His holiness looks at us, He sees Christ. And we are sheltered from the holy and justified wrath of God. But in the Old Testament, people were not sheltered from the wrath of God. And this is why God gave them laws and ways to, to follow certain ceremonies, to, to bring uh, ceremonial holiness to protect them. But this, this wrath would, would blaze out of God at times if people did the wrong thing. If people angered God, either with their sin or their uncleanness in one way or another. But that's not God's heart. God's heart, again, 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this is something that really stood out to me as I was reading, um, I don't have the, the reference here, but um, where God is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he's revealing to him the Ten Commandments and the ways that people can be ethically clean and, more, and uh, ceremonial clean, clean before him. 
so that God can live with His people without destroying them. And God's presence, the presence of the holy and powerful God is on the top of the mountain. The mountain is shaking and trembling and there's, there's peals of lightning and thunder. And the, and the people are down at the bottom just terrified of what they're seeing up on the hill. And Moses goes up to talk to God and, and the first thing God says is go back down there and talk to the people, tell them not to come close to the mountain. So he goes back down and tells them and they build a wall so nobody can come up and then he goes back up and God says go back down there again and warn them not to come up the mountain. And this happens at least twice. And you've got to think, like, poor Moses. Like, a mountain is kind of a big deal to climb. And he keeps going up and down and up and down because God keeps telling his people, stay away. Stay away. Don't break through to come up the mountain. Or else my wrath will break out on them and many will die. So God's heart is to protect his people. God's heart is to cherish and care for his people. But within his character as a holy God, as a powerful God, he will break out against the sins of man. In the same way that, I mean, if you're speeding on the freeway and a policeman sees you, you guys might be best buds. But he's got a job to do. Um, that is holiness and justice. But, but they put up signs. <laughs> To say, don't do that, and then we don't have to prosecute you, because their heart isn't, isn't to be mean. Uh, so I hope that point is clear. Um, so, ethically, God is justified in, in annihilating all of humanity, but for patience, He is waiting for all to come to repentance. Um, that being said, this is on page 4 here, point 3, God orders the progress of nations, and He has divided them basically into three categories. This is my understanding of, of how God works. Um, in Luke 1, 49-53, Mary sings about God. And she says that God lifts up uh, the humble and brings down the proud. And, you know, God is, is engaged with the nations in, in how they're progressing. So there's all the nations of the world. And it says in Acts 14, 6, that God has allowed the nations to go their own way. But God has chosen the Israelites in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, to, you know, to impart His nature to them, to speak to them, and to guide and shepherd them, specifically for a specific task. So you have all the nations, just God's letting them go their own way. And then He has the Israelites. And He's, he's got a plan for them, He's got a project for them, He's revealing Himself to them. And then there's this third category of people, the extremely wicked nations. So this is your Sodom and Gomorrah. This is your Assyria. This is your Babylon. These are the, the really bad nations. And God lets them go their own way to a certain point, and then He says, hmm, I think it might be time to step in here. And we have this dialogue where uh, God was speaking to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, and He says, their wickedness has come up to me in heaven. It's time for me to go down there and see just how wicked these people actually are. And um, the results are not good. They do a poll. And the poll doesn't doesn't come back with good survey results. And so God annihilates Sodom and Gomorrah. And God br brings about the downfall of um, Assyria. God brings about the downfall of Babylon. Why? I think a big part of it is to guide and to shepherd the... I want to, I'm going to use a word that we're not used to using in church, but the evolution of the human race. As I was preparing for this, I thought, isn't it interesting that we talk about social evolution and... If there's anything that our society is proud of, it's being more advanced than the previous generation. Look at us, we're so special. You know, we have an advanced view of women. Look at us, we're so special, we don't have um, slavery anymore. We're, we're advanced, we're evolved, we're, we're better as a society. And as you look back through history, you realize, well, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of advancement, there is a lot of progress. And yet, biblically speaking, it's God that orders the nations. And it's God... Because what has happened historically doesn't make sense. You would think that might would triumph. You would think that the outcome of evolution would be the strongest and meanest are the ones that are ruling the planet. But it's actually the opposite that happened. That the societies that are the most compassionate and, and, and the fairest actually tended to, to win. Why did that happen? So that's maybe a big point. I mean, that's just my personal opinion there. Um, but what is clear is that when you're reading the Old Testament and, and God says, 
we're going to wipe out this nation. This one's got to go. For God to kill is not murder. And he is doing that for the greater good. As, as the judge, as Lord, as the one who is shepherding the human race uh, to where he wants it to go. Um, so if it's not murder for God to kill, then it's also not murder for God to say, it's time to have a war. And he has his own chosen people, the Israelites, and he tells them to, at times, do what he wants them to do. It wouldn't be murder for God to send a flood, to send a plague, to send wild beasts, and it's not murder for him to send one nation to do battle against another nation. Um, now, we need to hasten to say, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, God says, or Jesus said, uh, my kingdom is not of this earth, otherwise my people would fight. And we believe in a separation of church and state. We believe that following Jesus' teaching that our kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. And that um, what God, the situation that God had in the Old Testament does not at all apply to us. Uh, today. So that's um, the first section here talking about uh, the wrath and the anger of God. Are there questions about that? Because that is a really important section here. Okay, if there aren't any pressing questions, then, then um, we'll save comments and commentary for the end here. Um, so the next section here is when the saints were bad. So as you're reading the Old Testament, you're going to bump into a lot of really crazy stories about um, some really horrible things that happened. What are some examples of some really horrible things that happened in the Old Testament? David and Bathsheba. So brothers being sold into slavery. Uh, a king that's supposedly the man after God's own heart, committing adultery and murder to cover up the adultery. What was that about? As a king loving God and then turning against him. Yeah, so Jephthah promises his daughter to God, and apparently doing human sacrifice, and don't really know what exactly happened. He he did what he promised to do. Yeah. Lots of people will go different ways on that, but something happened there. There's obviously the story at the end of Judges, which is probably the low point of the Bible, where um, somebody's concubine, and for one thing, somebody's got a concubine, and this may be in addition to the wives that he had, and, and um, the man was going to be assaulted, so instead he pushes his concubine out to be assaulted, and she is gang raped all night until she dies. And he comes out and he says, get up, we're going. And she doesn't get up because she's dead, and so he dismembers her and sends her all over the country and starts a civil war, and they annihilate the whole tribe that did this. So there's all sorts of these stories in the Bible and, and you're reading it and you're like, whoa, like, how can you use this as you're, you say this is, this is the source of ethics and morality for you, for one thing. For a second thing, how can you even read this? Like this is, this doesn't belong in, along, you know, in, in the annals of, of classical literature. This isn't what we should be encouraging our kids to read. This isn't what you should be reading, for goodness sake. We should read, you know, good sanitary books like, I don't know, Gulliver's Travels or something like that. Um, that's not a good example. <laughs> pretty weird. Um, okay, so we have three different categories that we're going to divide um, evil and wickedness in the Old Testament into. First of all, when bad people do bad things. Secondly, when bad people do bad things, but God told them to. And thirdly, when, sorry, when good people do bad things, but God told them to. And thirdly, when good people do, good th do bad things, and God didn't tell them to. So the first category is fairly easy to understand. When bad people do bad things in the Bible. So you have... Um, people Who was it now that sacrificed to Moloch? Was it the Amalekites or was it a different people group? There were people in the Bible that would literally incinerate their babies to their God as a child sacrifice. There's child sacrifice in the Bible. And these are... This is one of the reasons that God said, 
these people have to go. Uh, and this is why God ordered the, the annihilation of one of the people groups in the Old Testament was because of this child sacrifice business. Um, as well, there's, you know, there's, there's um, impalement and, and doing weird things with bodies and things like that. Um, done by the bad guys in the Bible, the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Hittites. So that's not really a, an issue except that it's kind of gory and nasty. But you kind of expect the bad people to do bad things, right? I mean, part of a good story is to have a really, really good bad guy. And the Bible has some really good bad guys in it. So that's, that kind of makes sense. Except that it's just so much guts and gore sometimes. There's just so much bad stuff happening. Is that really the book that we should be reading in our modern, elevated, educated day and age? And I guess I would just challenge somebody to click on the news and see just how advanced and evolved we actually are as a society. Because this is the stuff that's still happening today. Apparently, they tell me there's more slaves today than there ever have been in human history. And most of those are sex slaves. So how far have we come as a society, really? Um, there's... Our living condition has certainly improved, but a lot of people's living conditions around the world have decreased significantly with industrialization. How much have we really improved as a society? And the Bible... Tool number one, the Bible is a real book written about a real God that meets real people in a real world. The Bible is a real book written about real people, a real book written about a real God that meets real people in the real world. This is the real thing. And God does not sugarcoat it. He tells it like it is. And sometimes it's messy. And often, it's bad stuff happens. And this is tremendously comforting because it's not as though we go from an idealistic fairy world in the Bible to a harsh world that we don't know what to do with. The, the Bible itself is harsh. The Bible itself speaks about the world as it is, with human depravity as, as it, at its extreme, so that it prepares us for the real world that's actually out there. And you know what? God, the God who was able to help Gideon and Moses and David in their situation is the same God that can help us in our situation with all the things that we're confronting as a society and as a people. The second tool is don't judge real history against a utopia. I heard a, a historian on CBC mention this and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that. Because he was talking about um, the question, was it good for uh, England to have colonized India? And this historian said, on, on, uh, at the end of the day, yes, it was a good thing that England colonized India. Now, I'm not saying that's my opinion. I'm just saying this is this historian that said this, okay? And the commentary, of course, commentator, of course, was shocked because colonization and imperialism is, is evil, according to everybody um, that studies history today. So he's taking a very radical stance. And he says, look, you can't judge real history against a utopia. Sure. I mean, everything being equal, they should have, you know, maybe I want to leave that situation, but <laughs> this was a historian that was saying this, but what he was saying is, look, you've got to look at what the options were historically. The options historically is nobody colonizes them, and then they get left in the dust as other people get technology, and then they get conquered by other people, or else they get colonized by the Spanish, or by the French, or by the Germans, and it was better that they were colonized by the English, was his opinion. So, when you're reading the Bible, you need to understand what's actually going on. For most of the time in the Bible, people are only one bad harvest away from famine and death. So in living memory, the last time this, one of the last times this really happened in Western history was the great potato blight in, in, um, in uh, Ireland, where a whole bunch of people starved. But this would have been normal. And, and so people, as they're, they're defending themselves, as they're going to war, as... They're, they're trying to, to survive. There is a very real possibility that everybody's going to starve to, get to death next year if they don't have access to crops, or if their crops are burned, or if somebody steals their crops, or if they don't have access to the land. And I think that that goes a long ways to ex towards explaining, well, a lot of issues. And, and maybe in the question and answer, we'll bring some of those up. But just for one example, why did God allow polygamy? Why did God allow... Um, 
indentured slavery. So Israelites were allowed to um, make their fellow Israelites slaves for seven years. Why did God allow that? Well, I think a lot of it was so that people could survive. So people could live. Because if you didn't have rights to farming a plot of land, you were dead. Or else you had to sell yourself into slavery. And your generations forever would be in slavery. And so when you look at the actual situation of what's going on, um, instead of judging it against the utopia or judging it against our society, I mean, it's not as though the government had a large-scale taxation system where they could, you know, skim off money and then redistribute it to the poor, create a safety net. There wasn't any of that. The only safety net was family. And so that helps to explain a lot of what was going on in the Old Testament. Okay, so the next category is good people doing bad things, a.k.a. violence, but God told them to do it. Example, um, David, Moses, Joshua, engaging in wars, engaging in what we call a genocide, wiping out a certain people group. So again, this is God commanding these people to do it. So God is taking the moral, ethical guilt for that commandment. And because He is God, He has the right to say that. Now, again, God does not command today that we do that. Um, but in the Old Testament, He had a very unique situation where He was speaking directly to His people. Um, the third category is good people doing bad things. God didn't tell them to do it. They're clearly breaking uh, God's commands. Thinking about David committing adultery, committing murder, Moses losing his temper, and, and hitting the rock instead of speaking to it. Um, there's all sorts of examples in the Old Testament of, of people that are supposed to be saints. Gideon, after he you know, defeats, with, um, defeats the Midianites with the jars and the, and the trumpets and all that stuff, he goes on to set up a private temple in his home with an ephod and, and sets up his sons as priests and, and sets up an ultimate site of worship. What's with that? Um, as well as concubines and Samson is, is visiting harlots and all this sort of stuff going on. Um, something that is really helpful here, tool number three, is progressive revelation. We have, uh, I think Mark had told me about this, but we don't have anything to clean this way. You told me something about that, yes. Pack my brain full of the lecture, and there's no room for anything else, you know, basic commandments like paper towel on chair. Doesn't, does not compute. So, um, that's all right. We live by faith, not by sight. Um, as God is revealing himself throughout the Old Testament, there's a number of covenants that he is making with his people. And uh, there's a number of, different people will call them dispensations or different eras, where God is revealing more of himself. So God speaks to Adam and Eve in the garden. And he has a covenant with them. Don't eat this, the fruit from this tree, and here's the garden for you to tend and keep, take care of it. That doesn't go so well. And then the next covenant is with Noah. And after the flood, God says... Um, you are now permitted to eat meat. Don't kill one another. Don't drink. Don't eat the blood. And that's the Noahic covenant in a nutshell. And then we go on. What's the next one? I believe it's Abraham. It did, sometimes people will add different, different uh, categories in between. But you have the Abrahamic covenant where God tells Abraham to look up at the stars and, and see if he can count them. And he gives some circumcision as a sign. And um, Abraham... Life becomes an example for his descendants to follow. And then you have Moses. And with Moses, God gives a whole bunch of revelation. He speaks to his people a lot about what he expects and what he, what he wants and what his nature is like. So now all of a sudden his people have a lot of information that, for example, Isaac did not have. And Jacob did not have. And then we get up to David. And we have the Davidic covenant that God says... Your descendants will rule, and from your loins will come the Messiah. And um, David was a man after God's own heart, and he said in uh, Psalm 51, Sacrifices and offerings you have not required, but a broken and contrite spirit. 
And so he understands, he gets that God is looking at our heart. And he wants our heart. This is something that wasn't revealed to Moses. At least it's, it doesn't come clearly through in the Mosaic laws. The Mosaic laws are very focused on our external. But David gets the heart. And then we get to the prophets. And that's not necessarily a covenant, but the prophets are speaking so much about liberation and they're talking about having this, this relationship with God that then we get into, we see, meet Jesus and we're all ready for it. And then with Jesus, uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And everything has been leading up to Jesus so that as the Christians are writing after, as Paul and James and John are writing after, they're able to give the full representation of what the gospel is and what the Christian message is and, and, and the whole package. So you can't take what we're reading over here in James and say, well, hold on a second. This guy over here, Moses, wasn't living by that. You know, Mo, uh, or um, Noah built an ark and after watching all his friends and everybody he knew die, he made it a vineyard, got drunk, and, and lay there drunk. Well, we can't take Paul, who says, do not be drunk with wine, with wine but filled with the Holy Spirit, and judge Noah. Maybe he just didn't know better. He does have a conscience, of course, but consciences are not perfect, which is why God gives us the Holy Spirit. Uh, conscience can be corrupted and, and, and uh, confused by culture. As well, concubines, polygamy, other things like that, God just hadn't revealed yet what was the right and wrong in certain situations. So that goes a long ways, especially as we're, we're reading Judges. It was a very dark time when people did what they thought was right. And they honestly thought it was right. Um, even though what they were doing was not right, was not right, and as we read later on, we we see that they what they were doing was wrong, but they didn't necessarily know at the time. So that's progressive revelation. Also, I already mentioned this at the beginning. Perfect, we're right on time. Um, there are sections of the Old Testament that are descriptive, and sections that are prescriptive. Now, this is something we could dig right into, and we could, you know, start splitting hairs. Which section exactly is descriptive versus prescriptive and we could find all sorts of rules and, and we could really workshop this out but it's a very common sense rule if you read you know any children's story um, there will be a moral of the story and there's a good guy and a bad guy and they have all these adventures and at the end of it there's a moral of the story and sometimes it's, it's you know written there the moral of the story is don't do this um, and sometimes you just read the story and you get it you know, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. What's a good example of a children's story that teaches a good lesson? David and Goliath. I was thinking secular stories, but. Um, oh, okay. The boy that cried wolf. The boy that cried wolf, exactly. So, the boy that cries wolf, you know, he, he does this thing where, where he leads people on, and then at the end of the day, nobody's there to save him. So, that's describing something, and at the end of it, you're like, hmm. I wonder what the lesson from that story was. So, so, the point of the story is not to cry wolf. Amen? The point of the story is not to cry wolf. So sometimes people read the Old Testament and they're, and they're confused. They're saying, well, well, David committed adultery. Does that mean I get to commit adultery? Maybe you should read the context of that and have a look at what happened to David's life. Have a look at what happened to his generations after him. And the civil war that, that resulted from that sin. And what's great about the Bible, again I mentioned about the messiness of real life and how God meets us in the real world. Oftentimes the Bible doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't baby us. It tells us the whole story. This is what actually happened in this guy's life. Now you put it together. You put together the pieces. You think that was a good idea? You want to go do that? Go ahead. You'll have those consequences just like David did. Um... And so there's sections of the Bible that are descriptive and some that are prescriptive. Just like a prescription. You go to the doctor, the doctor says, take these drugs. Take a prescription, you go, do this, and you will live. Um, the law in the Old Testament prescribes certain things to do. Jesus prescribes a certain way of life. Paul prescribes a certain way of life. As well, there's descriptions of people, real people, just trying to do it. Trying to follow God. Trying, sometimes not trying. And... Sometimes their descriptions are because we're supposed to imitate them. And sometimes the descriptions are because we're not supposed to imitate them. And sometimes the descriptions are just because this happened in its real life. And there's some sections of the Bible that aren't really negative or positive. It's just 
Abed begat Bogat or whoever the, the person was. <laughs> I just made that up, that it's not from the Hebrew. Um, yeah, and along with that, the Old Testament contains both commands and concessions. So a really important tool is in Matthew 19.8, where Jesus is being challenged on his policy on um, divorce and remarriage. And Jesus said, divorce is always, you should not get divorced, because what God has put together, no one should separate. And, and then he says, except in the case of adultery, or, and then Paul talks about, um, you know, not letting an unbeliever go, and um, I don't want to get sidetracked in that discussion, because I know that can be a debated issue. But when they push back and say, well, hold on a second, Moses said that if you, if you, um, Moses said to give our wives a certificate of divorce, he commanded divorce. And Jesus said, he didn't command divorce, he allowed it for the hardness of your heart. And he said, if you're going to divorce, here's what you need to do. Give your wife a certificate of divorce. That gave her full rights. Now she's not just being rejected and thrown out on the street to where she's a dishonored woman in society and she can never remarry and, and you know, be an honorable woman in society to, to get married to somebody that has you know, wealth. But she'll be a dishonorable woman on the street and, and forced to beg or, or push into prostitution. No, give her a certificate of divorce so that she has full rights as a woman to go get married to somebody else and live. And so there's so much of this going on in the Old Testament. When you understand this key, you understand what God was doing because there was slavery in the Old Testament. From the prophets, we see so clearly this is not God's heart. Because whenever God is talking about the future through the prophets, He's talking about liberating the, the slaves and bringing freedom, announcing freedom, and that the kingdom of God is freedom for the slaves. And yet, there was slavery in the Old Testament. And again, because of the hardness of their times, it was not, this is just me saying this, it doesn't seem like it was, um, it was a legitimate option for God just to say, abolish all slavery. Rather, He brought limitations on it. And there's all sorts of limitations, especially for Israelite slavery. It's only seven years. Um, you should, a slave should be bought by the family of the slave. Okay, let me start over again. If somebody loses, if somebody goes bankrupt, so this is a farming situation, you borrow money for your, to, to sow your fields, the, the crop fails, you don't have money to pay that back, so you're, you're bankrupt. What, what was happening normally was that meant that family is ruined forever. One child is sold here, the other child is sold there, the wife is sold here, the husband is sold there, and that family name disappears forever. And the field will be parceled off, and it'll be as though that family line never existed. God said, I don't want that happening here. Rather, the family as a block is bought by whoever in the family has the means to support them. So they pay off the debts, and then this family comes to live on their farm for seven years. And they work for free for seven years. And there's certain rules about how they should be treated, and they, how they should not be treated. And then after seven years, they're to be released. And after, the, at certain increments, every 49 years, they get their land back. And when they're released, they're given money to start over again. And so this is a very compassionate way of taking care of people. And we still have a vestige of this. We have seven years after um, you go bankrupt, where there's this period where you can't, uh, you can't borrow and things like this. There's a certain period that's still a leftover from this Old Testament commandment. And so this is a concession. God says slavery is happening, it's a reality, but here's how we're going to limit it. And here's how we're going to protect people in the real world, in the real life. And at the same time, um, it, through the prophets and through the Psalms, God is revealing His heart. That His heart is freedom and equality. And as Christians understood, hey, it's not Jews versus Greeks, we're all the same, it's not slave versus free, we're all one in Christ. Christians have been the ones, we have nothing to be ashamed of, historically speaking. Because it's been Christians who have brought in abolition of slavery. Yes, there were also Christians that held that back, especially in the States. Uh, although in other parts of the world as well. And that, that held that back. But why was it that it was Christians arguing for this? It's because it was a Christian debate. Christian versus Christian, debating from scriptures whether this was true or not. And eventually the Christian voice won over, or the, 
the voice within Christianity won over, and now abolition is a global movement that was birthed out of Christianity. So section three, this is one that we are going to skim over fairly quickly. Um, is weirdness in the Old Testament. There are seriously weird laws in the Old Testament, right? Laws that just seem completely arbitrary, like don't eat shellfish, or don't sow barley and wheat in your field, or don't wear clothes that have two different types of thread in them, such as, I mean, probably most of us are wearing cotton, polyester, you know, nylon blends. That's wrong. You can't do that, according to the Old Testament. Um, there's, there's laws that just seem icky and weird, such as laws about periods and seminal emissions and, you know, like God, why did you put that in there? You know, we all know what happens, but we don't need to read about it. Um, and there's laws that, um, that seem really ruthless and mean, you know, such as uh, stoning a child to death if they disrespect their parents. Um, so there's, as well as the death penalty attached to various other uh, crimes in the Old Testament. So part of the death penalty being used fairly often in the Old Testament, I think again we can appeal back to, you know, you can't compare it to a utopia. They didn't have a prison system. So either you, you flog somebody or you kill them. So those are basically the, the two commandments, in the, or you find him. So in the Old Testament you have fines, flogging, and execution. Um, you didn't have a prison because there weren't prisons. Um, so that's just understanding the times. But more importantly, the Old Testament contains moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. The law of Moses contains moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. I'm going to flip back and forth between moral and ethical because I've got both written on my sheet. They both mean the same thing. Um, so there's laws like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not, not commit adultery, have no gods before me, thou shalt not... Uh, create a, a graven image, uh, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy, honor your father and mother, do not covet. Those are all moral commandments that speak about how to live a godly life. They're talking about your heart, they're talking about your actions, they're talking about uh, ethics. And then there are civil laws, because God was setting up a theocracy. God's people 1.0 was... I should re-say that. God's people 1.0. Um... The first covenant was God setting up a theocracy. And so God set up certain laws to govern the theocracy. A theocracy is a system of government where the religion and the state are fused together, such as radical Islam today. Very similar to what was going on in the Old Testament, in the sense that it was a theocracy. Um, the priests were the highest rulers and authorities before, before the kings were instituted with Saul and David. Um, so God was setting up a theocracy where the priests are going to run the whole country. And so there's, there's laws that are set up. And, and there's the death penalty that's instituted as well as other punishments. And there's certain laws for how to govern life. And, and a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of our legal system is based on the Old, Old Testament, by the way. Probably most of you guys know that. Um, but when you look at it from that perspective, not with the, with the lens of... Um, oh, that's religion, it's bad that they're executing people. But thinking about it from the perspective of a society in a difficult context, trying to organize itself, God handed down some pretty common sense rules and a pretty good way, well, a very, the best way to run a society. But in the New Testament, as I've already quoted, John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my people would fight. And Jesus taught that now... The, sep the, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God is separate. And Christians throughout the ages have wrestled with that tension, and there's all sorts of different ways that Christians have understood um, the, the relation between church and state. But in one form or another, we believe that our ultimate kingdom is in heaven. Our ultimate kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And so the civil commandments of the Old Testament do not apply to us in the sense of this is how we should, we should push this on, on our society. Um, such as, you know, radicalism tries to push Sharia law. Um, as Christians, we don't try to push the Old Testament laws on society as, as far as, you know, the, the death penalty and, and the other consequences. It does apply in the sense that this is good wisdom. This is a good way to organize a society. 
And we can see God's heart written here. Psalm 1, 2 talks about how we need to meditate on God's Word day and night. And as we meditate on it, not just looking at the, at the words and, and the basic bare bones commandments, but understanding the heart behind it, understanding the context, understanding the bigger picture. As we meditate on God's heart behind the law, then we can see wisdom and we can see, um, we can see what God's intention was as he, as he revealed the Old Testament to the ancient Jews. Finally, there's ceremonial laws. And Hebrews talks a lot about this because it's written to the Hebrew people. And it talks about how um, God is the, Jesus is the new high priest. And that whole Old Testament system was all pointing towards Christ. And the whole system of offering sacrifices and doing all these rituals to be ritually, ceremonially clean, this all was supposed to point to Christ. And now that Christ has come, um, the writer of Hebrews goes so far as to say in Hebrews 18.13, the old way is obsolete. <clears throat> it is obsolete. It's like an iPad first generation. It's just... It's, it's a very expensive co uh, coaster. It, it is obsolete. It was all pointing towards Christ. Now Christ has come. So we don't need to offer sacrifices. We don't need to dress a certain way. We don't need to uh, follow the, the laws about um, fabric in our clothes, kosher laws, food to eat, and things like this. Because all that stuff was pointing to Christ and the reality of the internal work of the Holy Spirit and what it would mean to be um, a holy people set apart to God. Um, all these things are fulfilled in Christ and, um, and in the church. So, uh, and the, the last big idea here is that ceremonial uncleanness is not the same as ethical guilt. Ceremonial uncleanness is not the same as ethical guilt. So again, somebody asked me, um, a, a non-Christian seeker that was, that was trying to understand the Old Testament, why did God penalize women for having menstrual periods? They, they have no, no control over that, so why is that a sin? You need to understand, for one thing, there's also, con there's also um, things that happen to guys, seminal missions, that also makes ceremonial uncleanness, as well as a whole bunch of other things that cause ceremonial uncleanness in the Old Testament. And ceremonial uncleanness is not the same as ethical guilt. You kill somebody, you're ethically guilty. If you pick up a lizard, you're ceremonially unclean, even though you haven't done anything wrong. If you visit a corpse at a, at a funeral, you're ceremonially unclean, even though you didn't do anything wrong. And there's certain practices prescribed in the Old Testament. If you get sick, certain sicknesses, especially if you have pus or bodily fluids coming out, you're ceremonially unclean. Um, and there's certain rituals to follow to become ritually unclean, or else how to conduct yourself while this is going on. And a lot of these things, of course, a lot of them are pointing forward to Christ, because the Jews at the time of Christ had this very vivid image of what it meant to be ceremonially unclean. And then God, Jesus was able to, to bridge that gap and say, your sins, or actually Isaiah um, said, your, um, all of us have become unclean, uh, and our sins, uh, we've become like a filthy rag, and our iniquities, like the wind, are blowing us away. To say, okay, this is ceremonial uncleanness. You know what this is. You live with this all the time. You try your best to stay ceremonially clean, but sometimes it gets on you. And then you have this whole rigmarole to go through to get clean again. Okay, ethically, that's what you are. That's what's going on inside. So it became this visual, this vivid visual picture to say, that's what's going on inside. That's how God sees you. He sees your heart as being unclean. You need to clean your heart. Purify your hearts, um, as it says in James Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Um, but also, so, so this is pointing to Christ. It's also a vivid mental picture. It's also really good hygiene. And most of our hygiene in our Western society, we just take for granted, comes from the Old Testament. And simple little thing, I was over in Africa while, during the Ebola outbreak in 2014. I was not in the place where Ebola was, but I was close enough that we were you know, a little concerned. And what did they tell people to do? Number one thing for preventing the spread of Ebola. What is the number one thing? Wash your hands. What is the number one thing the Old Testament tells people to do? Wash your hands. And also, change your clothes. 
And if certain things happen, you'd be unclean till evening. So anytime there, there's bodily fluids coming out, anytime you touch something unclean, you wash your hands, you don't touch other people, you don't touch food, and until evening, and then you're unclean, you're clean again. So it's a very, very common sense thing. Um, as well, you don't touch dead people. You don't eat animals that died of natural causes. You uh, drain the blood out of the body so that it, it delays the decaying process. Uh, and, and so there's a whole bunch of really common sense thing in the Old Testament. Uh, it's not the primary thing, but it shows God's heart and also His tremendous wisdom. I mean, Louis Pasteur, he lived, was it 200 years ago? He finally discovered bacteria and how it all worked. So, almost 4,000 years before this, God is revealing to His people, wash your hands. If you touch, touch something dead, you're unclean. Don't touch food. Wash your hands. And then let at least 12 hours pass before you, you touch any food or you touch anybody else. So there's tremendous um, common sense as well. People have said, and I'm not an expert on this, but eating kosher apparently is a tremendously good way to avoid cancer and a lot of other diseases. Apparently those are far less prevalent, prevalent among people that eat kosher. That being said, I had a bacon cheeseburger yesterday. So. <laughs> um, yeah. I think we're just about on time. I went two minutes over what I had planned. So, let's play a game called Stump the Professor. Hit me with the best questions you've got. Um, and if I don't know the answer, I will honestly tell you I don't know the answer. But what are some of the, the biggest problems that you see in the Old Testament that might trip you up personally? Or that might hypothetically trip up one of your friends or, or maybe somebody's presented it to you. 